as I said a moment ago, one of the building blocks of any personal relationship, one of the building blocks of any relationship that you and I share or have is trust. Trust is, is one of the foundational bricks that allows relationships to grow. Without trust, relationships will never develop. They'll never get deep. They will never grow. But the thing about trust is, is usually we take it for granted. Usually it's something that we don't pay attention to until it's lost. And once it's lost, we realize not only how valuable it is, but how difficult it is to build it back up. Probably all of us in this room have been on one side or the other of the trust issue. Most of us in here have probably had somebody disappoint us through their actions or, or through something that they said or, or something that they did towards us that caused us to lose trust in them. And maybe you've gone and tried to restore that trust, but maybe you haven't. For most of us, there are a lot of people in our lives that we have broken off from because they've disappointed us. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you've disappointed others. Maybe through your actions, maybe through your words, maybe through something you said, it caused a rift in trust between you and somebody you care about, and that trust hasn't been restored, and the relationship has suffered, and the relationship has gone astray. Most of us, if we were honest, at different seasons in our lives, find ourselves on one side or the other. We've experienced both. And we recognize that it's a reality in all of our relationships, but it's a reality that the Bible tells us we have got to rectify. See, broken trust is not what God calls us to. As I said earlier, He is calling us to reconciliation, to restoration. And if there was ever a case of a relationship that was broken that seemed impossible to be put back together, it was the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. If there was ever a reason for us today to say, it's okay to walk away from people, it's okay when people hurt us just to leave them, it would be Joseph and his brothers. But just the opposite happens. And what I want you to see this morning is what Joseph does to bring restoration to that relationship can be had in each of your relationships. Every relationship that you have that you've experienced broken trust, it can be reconciled if we'll follow his example. Now when I was young, when I was growing up, my mother collected figurines. She collected all different kinds of figurines, and uh, she got into collecting Hummel figurines. And I don't know if you know what Hummel figurines are. Uh, they are uh, kind of like a precious moment, before precious moments, and a lot more expensive than precious moments. And my parents had gone to Germany, and when they were in Germany, she fell in love with them, and she bought a couple and brought them home, and they became the centerpiece of her collection. And uh, she began to collect after that. And she had a nice curio cabinet where she had all of her collectibles, her Hummels and her other figurines, except for the two that she bought in Germany. Those were her favorite. One of them was a dated figurine, and because it was dated, it was more expensive, and the other one was just something her and my dad really liked, and so they kept them on the mantle in the living room. Now, when I was in middle school, I, I've told you before, I was the oldest of four. Uh, when I was in middle school, my parents decided to give me the opportunity to take care of my brothers and sisters while they were at work in the summer. And so that became my, uh, my responsibility, my job, if you will. They gave me an allowance for doing it. And so I watched them. We had a swimming pool, so it was pretty easy. We would swim and play, and uh, they'd stay out of my hair, and I'd stay out of theirs. But on one particular day in the middle of the summer, it was raining outside. And we had checked the channel, and, and Price is Right was over, and there was only three channels, and there's nothing else coming on. And uh, what happens when you've got three boys and a young girl in the house, and there's nothing else to do, is you begin to create games. And so uh, sitting in our living room floor was a, a basket of clean laundry. 
And on top of that basket of clean laundry was a bunch of folded socks, and they were rolled up into little balls. Well, I decided those socks would make a perfect opportunity for us to play dodgeball there in the living room. Now, you know, uh, socks aren't going to hurt anybody, and I'm seven years older than my youngest sibling, my next closest sibling. So really, it was an opportunity for me just to hit my siblings with socks that were rolled up. Uh, But we developed a whole game, and it was me against the three of them. And they were on one side of the living room, and I was on the other, and we would get the socks, and we would throw them at each other and dodge and dive and yes we had been warned a million times don't throw anything into the living room and uh, that's one of those rules you know if your parents as a parent when you tell a kid y'all don't throw anything in the house that is only a lesson that can be learned the hard way Uh, most kids when we hear that as a kid it, it doesn't mean anything to us and so we're playing dodgeball in the living room and I've already gotten them out a couple of times it's probably the third or fourth game and I'm running and hiding, and I see a sock coming from my youngest brother, and it is going over my head towards the chimney and towards our mantle. And as I turn, I recognize that that sock, although it was thrown very weakly, was headed straight towards my mother's collectibles on the mantle. And if you've ever had something like that happen, you know what it's like. Time freezes, doesn't it? It's like instantly you know the end result and you can do nothing to stop it. And so I watched as this sock came hurling over and, you know, and I, I think I even made a motion to run towards it. And it was so softly thrown that it barely landed on top of where my mother's hummels were. But it was just enough to cause it to fall over. That would have been fine if it had just fallen over, but it didn't just fall over. It fell over and it rolled. And as it rolled, it hung on the edge of our mantle And time seemed to stop as it just slowly leaned over and began to fall towards the chimney sweep there. And it began to roll down. And I can remember as clear as it is today, when that thing fell, it was like a bomb had gone off. I think there was shrapnel, there was carnage, it fell, and it just went boom, and it was everywhere. Within that instant, I knew my life was over. That was the end. There was not... There was not any excuses that would do. We, we went around and we picked up the pieces. You know, you always hope in your mind, we can, we can put it back together. And so we picked up the pieces and it was going to be impossible. And so we had a pile of Hummel there. And this was one of those times where uh, the best case scenario is for you to admit it as soon as possible, hoping to catch them off guard so that you won't get as bad a punishment as you thought. And so the moment my mother walked in, I pointed towards the Hummel and said, we, we broke it. It was an accident, of course. We didn't mean to do it. We didn't do it. And, and there was a lot of crying, hers and mine, a lot of tears, uh, a lot of words that were said and lessons that were, were given. And, and I don't remember any of those, but I remember after a few minutes, I, I do remember being very thankful my dad worked shift work and he wouldn't be home till late, late. But uh, as mom settled down, she came in and told me, of course, I'm grounded for life. You're not going to be able to escape. I think I'm still probably grounded from it. But then she said this. She said, "Um, your father and I trusted you. Now that hurt. Because even as a 13-year-old, I recognized that I had broken something that was very important. She said, we trusted you to watch your brothers. We trusted you to take care of the house and you've disappointed us you've broken our trust and she explained that my punishment was going to be for the next several weeks or until as long as it took i was going to put back together the pieces of that humble figurine now if you would have seen it you'd have known that that was an impossible job even today then we didn't have gorilla glue or any that we had model glue you put models together elmer's glue or epoxy you didn't have any glue 
But she said, and as she said that, one thing resonated with me. She said, and as you sit in that room and recognize how hard it is to put this figurine back together, you'll recognize how hard it is to rebuild trust once it's broken. And so for the next two and a half weeks of my summer vacation, my friends were playing and swimming and running. I sat in my bedroom, which is not a good place for an ADD 13-year-old. But I recognized the gravity of it. And I sat there with a a tube of model glue and Q-tips. And I picked up the pieces of broken trust and strived to put it back together. See, trust is invaluable. Trust is something that... As I said, you and I recognize its importance, but we take it for granted. It's foundational. And what I found as a pastor in counseling that in marriages and in families and in relationships, when there is a broken trust, those relationships are never healthy. And they always face the consequences of them. And once it has been broken, once trust has has been severed, it is a long road. And I can tell you, hour after hour, sitting there putting those pieces back together, it was tedious and it was long. And that's what happens when we break trust. And what I find nowadays, for most of us in the church, what we decide when someone breaks our trust or we break someone's trust is it's just easier for us to give up and walk away from them than going through the work to try to rebuild a relationship. We do. We just say it's enough. We use these modern phrases like, uh, hurt me once, shame on you, hurt me twice, shame on me, right? So I'm going to walk away from this relationship. I'm going to build a barrier around myself and walk away. But the funny thing is, for Christians, we are confronted with that dangerous little word, grace. Unmerited favor. For you see, it's grace that reconciles us with Christ. And it's grace that allows you and I to fail on a daily basis and yet still be accepted and loved and forgiven. And it's grace that compels each one of us to seek to reconcile the things that God's called us to, to seek to restore that which has been broken. Grace teaches us and it tells us that relationships and trust can not only be rebuilt, can be reestablished, but they can be rebuilt stronger than they ever were in the first place. You see, what we find as Christians is it's easy to sing about grace. It's easy to talk about grace, but it's very difficult to live it, especially where the water hits the wheel when it comes to our personal relationships. And if there was ever anyone who had a good enough reason to not care and to walk away, it was Joseph. Joseph's brothers, 20 years before where our story is, had had taken him out. He loved them. He idolized them. They were big brothers, and they had beat him threatening to kill him, and instead of killing him, they had thrown him into a well and sold him into slavery as a 17-year-old boy. There was anybody that had an excuse, anybody that has a reason, and some of you say, Pastor, you don't know what this person did to me. I've got a reason to not want to reconcile. I've got a reason to not make any effort in here. If anybody had a reason, it was Joseph. But yet that moment, 20 years later, when Joseph is standing there and he sees those 10 men grown men with children of their own come in and bow down before him. Something broke inside of him and he recognized that there was a chance that his family, a family that he didn't even remember from 20 years before, a chance that they could be restored. 
There was a chance that, that somehow everything would come together and he decided right then it was worth the effort. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, he began to put a plan in place because although he recognized that he wanted to restore a relationship, without two things, two very important things, it wasn't going to work. And these are two key principles in every relationship, especially if you want to restore. The first one is honesty. You see, he recognized that for restoration to work, his brothers were going to have to be completely honest with him. And for you and I, if we are ever going to restore a relationship, the one thing that builds that relationship back together is honesty, is telling the truth, expecting the truth from someone and being willing to tell somebody the truth. And the second thing that he was looking for his brothers is that they somehow recognized what they had done and they were sorry for it. Not just with words, but with actions. You see, for there ever to be reconciliation, for there ever to be restoration, there has to be honesty, but there also has to be repentance. And repentance is different from regret. You see, regret won't ever get you to reconciliation. Most of us regret what we say. Most of us regret the things that we've done that have broken someone's trust. Most of us regret the things that come out of our mouths. But regret is not enough. You have to recognize that what you did or said was not only wrong, but it severed a relationship, and you have to be willing to turn from that behavior. And so to see if these brothers had actually done that, Joseph sets out a set of tests so to, to test them, to see where their heart is. He hadn't seen them in 20 years. He doesn't know. Now, he'd already had this encounter with them where they'd come for grain and he'd laid out a little test, seeing if they were going to be honest, asking about their father, asking about their brother. But he gave them grain and he sent them back home, asking them to bring their youngest brother back. And we learned last week that when the brothers got home and began to tell dad, Jacob, Israel, all that had happened, Israel, with his negative, pessimistic attitude, said, you're not going back said, we're leaving. They left Simeon, the second oldest brother, in prison in Egypt as a hostage or ransom. They said, leave him there. You're not going back. We'll eat this grain. We'll stay here. But over time, we learned that the grain had run out. They didn't have any more food, and so they needed to do something to be able to get some food. And so Jacob finally relented and said, okay, take Benjamin, go back and get some grain. And so the boys load up. Now you remember... As they were coming home the first time, the money that they took to pay for the grain had been re-put back into their bags. Joseph gave it back to them. God had blessed them. They, didn't, they got free grain and didn't have to pay for it. And so they get back. Jacob says, take that money, then take some extra money back with you. Maybe you can bribe them. So the boys with Benjamin now are headed back to prove to the king of Egypt, to this prime minister of Egypt, that not only are they not spies, but they have genuine uh, concern for their family. And they are genuine in what they bring. And so that's where we pick up in the story. And I want you to see how Joseph works to reconcile this relationship through the story. So I'm going to start in verse 15. That ends right where we were last week. It says, so the men, that's the brothers, took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, and they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, this is this guy that runs his household, take these men to my house and slaughter an animal and prepare dinner, for they are to eat with me at noon. Now that's a big deal. These are Hebrew boys, Hebrew men, and Egyptian and Hebrew didn't mix. It was not 
they were considered uh, outsiders, foreigners. They were considered uncouth and uneducated. But here is Joseph when he sees them coming with his youngest brother, which he hadn't seen in 20 years. He's the only one he hadn't seen yet. He says, we're going to have a dinner at my house. T- send them to my house. Now that, that's going to send alarm bells off for these boys. They're expecting to go back to the granary. And all of a sudden the steward shows up and the man did as Joseph told him and he took them into Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to the house. And they thought we were brought back here because of the silver it was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. Now you can tell not only is the guilt of their behavior still resonating But they've allowed, remember last week we talked about pessimism versus optimism. They've allowed their dad's negative thinking to corrupt their own. They're creating scenarios. They don't understand that God's hand is in all of this. They they don't see that God was the one who gave them free grain and their money back. And now God is about to take them to a place of blessing. They can't even recognize it because they're so negative and they've created so many negative scenarios. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Please, sir, we came down here the first time to buy food, but at the palace where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found we had silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we brought it back with us, and we've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who has put the silver in our sacks. See, their, their guilt from Joseph is still resonating 20 years later. They feel like they're having to pay for what they've done. Listen what the steward says. The NIV doesn't do it justice. The King James says, peace be with you. The NIV says, it's all right. But actually what he says is a derivative of shalom. And he uses Hebrew. He says in Hebrew, their language, which has got to shock them, he says, peace, be still, peace over each one of you. Don't be afraid for your God, the God of your father, has given your treasures in your sack. And I receive your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to him. Now see, here's another example. God, God is using a pagan. They are so wrapped up in their scenarios. God is using a pagan in a pagan land to remind them that their God, the God of their father, the God that they worship, the God who provides shalom, is the one who gave them these blessings. They, they couldn't even see it. And their brother comes out and he's set free. Says the steward then took them into Joseph's house and gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkey. And they prepared the gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they heard that they were to eat there. And when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts that they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him on the ground. It's the third time they bowed down before him. Remember the dream back in Genesis 37. God told him, your brothers are going to bow down before you. They bow down before him and he asked them how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. And as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. He looks at his brother. This is not his stepbrother. This is his real brother, the one from his own mother. And he looks and he, he recognizes and gives a blessing to Benjamin. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. And he went into his private room and he wept there. And after he had washed his face, he came out controlling himself and said, serve the food. 
They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate uh, with them could not eat with the Hebrew, for that is detestable to Egyptians. And so the men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in astonishment. Now see, Joseph's playing games here because he's beginning to try to help them understand that something is up, something is not right. He sets them around the table in order from first, from, from uh, Reuben all the way down to Benjamin, 11 in order. And they have to recognize that's not an accident. They hadn't told anybody the order of these 11 brothers. And matter of fact, mathematicians will tell you that there are 39 million different ways to seat 11 people at a table. So it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. Joseph is getting in their head. He's beginning to try to help them understand something is different. So they were astonished, and that word doesn't do it justice. They were shocked. They were taken aback. See, they, they are caught off guard completely. Now, Joseph, all along, he had recognized that, that, that these guys were, uh, that they were changed men. But he wanted to see just how changed they were. So as they're eating, look what he says in verse 34. And when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else. And they feasted and they drank freely with him. Now, why in the world would he give Benjamin five times what everybody else had, the youngest? Now, do you remember what started the whole problem in the first place? Do you remember why his brothers were mad at Joseph? Do you remember why they didn't like Joseph? They were jealous of Joseph because he was the youngest son, but considered the father's favorite. He was given the coat, and jealousy drove them. Jealous of what he had, jealous of what he got. Jealousy drove them to their action. So here Joseph is putting a test before them by giving the youngest son, the least son, they're in order, they can easily tell, the least son, the blessings and the most food. Because he wants to see that they're all sitting there and, and you got your steak. And you know how it is when you go out to eat and you all order the same meal. And, and you look around and, and you get a steak and the person next to you gets a steak. And your steak looks like a six ounce and theirs looks like a, uh, you know, a, an 18 ounce sirloin. And you're looking and you're saying, what would you get? I got the same thing. There's a little jealousy that comes in, isn't there? Well, imagine they're eating and all of a sudden the youngest baby brother 25 years younger than Reuben and Simeon. He's got the feast. Because Joseph is testing to see if whether or not they are still struggling with jealousy. And they pass the test. They recognize that they are all blessed to have what they have in front of them. And so they all celebrated. And so it worked. But was that enough? You see, they had overcome their honesty. They had been honest with Joseph all along. They seemed to have overcome their jealousy. But Joseph had one more test, and this was the most important one, to see whether or not they were willing to be restored. They celebrate to have a feast. And then verse, chapter 44, Joseph gives these instructions. He said, I want you to fill the men's sacks when they leave with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for the grain. And he did as Joseph said. Eleven sacks filled with grain, filled with the silver that they brought to pay for it. And then he took Joseph's special cup, which was his silver cup, which was, uh, you know, like the cup that the king would drink from. And he stuck it down in Benjamin's sack because he was working out a test. He said, as the morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys and they had not gone far from the city. When Joseph said to his steward, go after these men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, you have repaid good with evil. Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? For this is a wicked thing you have done. 
And so when he called up to him, he repeated these words to him. But they said to him, What does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We've even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found the first time. So why will we steal silver or gold from the master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, we will die, and the rest of us will come the Lord's slaves. Very well, then, the master said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have the cup will become my slave, and the rest of you are free from blame. And each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground. They opened it, and the steward began and proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And when he got to Benjamin and his sack, the cup was found. And at this, they tore their clothes, and they loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. You see, this was a test of preservation. This was a test to see whether or not they were willing to let their brother go, the youngest brother, whether they were willing to say, because they said, listen, whoever's cup is in the sack, that's the one we're going to arrest. Everyone else is free to go. And so Joseph is testing the same guys that were willing to sell their youngest brother into slavery for their own sake to be able to get rid of him if they would do the same thing to the other youngest brother. So 20 years later, here the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, and they are given a chance to say, okay, Benjamin, you're on your own, the way they did to Joseph, and go back to their dad, but they don't because they're changed. They have repented of their actions. They begin to tear their clothes And instead of leaving Benjamin to his own results, the way they did Joseph, they travel back with him to the city. And they come before Joseph, and Joseph gives them one more chance to walk away. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What is this that you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can't find things out by divination? What can we say, Lord, Judah said? How can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. So instead of just giving Benjamin over and saying, you take him as your slave, they said what? We're all your slaves. We are all willing to give our lives for the sake of Benjamin's life. And Joseph gave him a chance. He said, far be it for me to do such a thing. For only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace changed men and for the rest of the chapter the brothers come up including judah and beg for their brother's life basically saying we are not leaving without him we they remember we already lost a brother we're not leaving and the one who stands before joseph judah begins to plead with joseph you do not know what this will do to our dad if we go home without our youngest brother it'll break his heart Now, isn't it ironic that Judah is the very one, if you go read in chapter 37, that convinced his brothers to sell Joseph in the first place, that could care less what his dad thought. You remember they took those broken colored robe back to their dad, to Jacob, and laid it at his feet and pretended that wild animals had killed their brother and their, their dad was broken and bereaved. It didn't bother the brothers a bit. They walked away and went on their own. But here, 20 years later, when given the same chance, they had repented. They had changed. And for the rest of the chapter, they try to prove that they have been changed men. You see, they weren't just feeling sorry for what they had done. They didn't just regret it. They had repented. And in that repentance, Joseph recognized that there was trust to be rebuilt. And that paves the way for an incredible reunion in the next chapter where he opens up and says, look, it's me, your brother. It paved the way for reconciliation, for a family reunion that Joseph probably never imagined would happen. Why? Because his brothers were honest and they repented of their actions. See, you and I need to recognize 
today that when we have done something, when we have broken trust with someone, the first step is for us to be honest. The first step is for us to admit what we've done. And it always needs to be followed by repentance. It always needs to be followed by actions. You see, too many times what happens when we, when we break trust, when we hurt someone through our actions or our deeds and, and we split their trust, the first thing we do is deny it. Or we rationalize it or we make excuses. And please hear me, when you begin to deny and rationalize and make excuses, when you've broken someone's trust, all it does is make the divide deeper. And, and today what we do is we try to explain why we did what we did, that somehow why doing it would make it okay for what we did. Don't get caught in the why trap. I try to tell you parents all the time, kids love to discuss the whys. And when we start arguing the whys, you forget and lose focus of what it was that was done. When something is done that's wrong, we, we want to start talking, well, why did you do it? It doesn't matter why they did it. It didn't matter if they felt bad. It didn't matter if they were tired or angry, upset. What they did was wrong, and that has consequences. And what happens when we break someone's trust, we always go to the why. Well, I, I didn't mean to do that, and I didn't mean to say that. I, I was trying to do something right. And all that does is break it wide open and make the trust get even worse. Some of you this morning... You need to open your eyes to the broken trust in relationships. And you need to start by admitting what you've done. For a lot of us in this room, we're on the other side. Somebody close to you has broken trust with you. Somebody close to you has disappointed you. Somebody close to you has hurt you through their actions. And trust has been broken. You've been hurt, maybe not as much as Joseph, but you've been hurt what do you do when that person comes to you seeking restoration? What do you do when they come with open and honesty? Well, you're required to do what the Bible says. You've got to operate in forgiveness. You've got to operate in love. You've got to operate in grace. You need to follow Joseph's example. Someone comes to you and they're willing to say, listen, what I did was wrong. Then you need to give them grace and you need to give them an opportunity to prove to you that they repented of what they did. Ronald Reagan used to say in the early 80s that we need trust, but verify. That's how we need to operate. Trust someone. Give them the benefit of the doubt, but look for repentance in their life. I'm not saying you open yourself up to be hurt again. I'm not saying you allow somebody to bowl you over. What I am saying is that you don't close the door to their repentance. Give them the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. That's why we need to be optimists instead of pessimists, looking for the good instead of looking for the negative. Believe the best in them and choose love over being suspicious. And the way we need to walk is to always fail on the side of grace. You see, it needs to be said of each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ that if we fail, we fail giving somebody too many chances instead of not enough chances. Now, I know that's not I know some of you have been hurt deeply. Some of you that have people with addicted problems in their lives those people they they repent and come and say I'm, I'm better now and everything's good and and you get hurt and you get hurt and you get hurt and it's easy to grow cynical it's easy to grow pessimistic it's easy to want to shut them out so you say well pastor how many times do we have to give them a chance how many times when someone has hurt us and someone has disappointed us and someone has broken our hearts how many times do we give them a chance well that's an easy answer 
How many chances did Jesus give you? How many chances does he give you? See, that's a mic drop moment. That's a moment where you say, Pastor, that's a Sunday school answer. We can't do like Jesus. Well, Jesus thought about that because his disciples struggled with the same thing. And his disciples came to him and said, Teacher, how many times should we forgive someone? How many times should we give someone a chance? You know, the Bible and the prophets say seven times. So, so should we give them seven chances? And Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. Even though it says seven times, I'll tell you, you forgive them seven times 70, which wasn't a math equation. What he was saying is you forgive them every time. You say, Pastor, that's hard. Yes, it is. But God forgives you every time. And God restores trust in you. And God gives you a chance. I'm not saying open yourself up. What I'm saying is be willing to hear them out, seek honesty, and seek repentance. And when you begin to find honesty and repentance, you see, if somebody comes to you with honesty and they're open and they're broken and they are repentant and you walk away, you are the one who is going to have to deal with the consequences, not them. That's the power of grace. You see, I believe until that moment when Joseph's brothers came and bowed before him, he hadn't thought about reconciling with them. He hadn't thought about restoring that relationship. He hadn't thought about family reunions. He probably hadn't even thought about them. But the moment they bowed down, it opened the door for him to begin to see that there was a chance. And I'm telling you that this week, there is going to be a chance. There is going to be a cracked door for you to restore a relationship that you never thought could be restored. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear. See, I believe God's going to give you a chance. Maybe you're the one that walked away. God is going to give you an opportunity to be honest and to be repentant and to begin to heal that broken relationship. Why? Because you'll be more like Christ and they'll be set free to be like Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I was in my basement looking for something. Matter of fact, I was looking for old concert ticket stubs. Prince, the artist, had died. and I'd gone when I used to see Prince in concert many times, and I was going to relive teen years, and so I was going through my high school teen box and looking at yearbooks and looking at everything and have a whole bunch of junk from 30 years ago when I was in high school and graduated high school, and I was looking through all that, and I came across a box, and I didn't know what it was. It wasn't labeled, and so I broke it open wondering what it was, and in it were two Hummel figurines. I hadn't thought about those things in years. But I knew I'd broken one. I, I still remembered that much. But I couldn't remember which one. So I got those two figurines, and I, I kept looking at them there in the basement. I thought, I, I don't know which one was broken and put back together. Couldn't tell. Wasn't until I took it over to the light bulb in our basement and held it up and began to see a few cracks in one and began to rub my fingers over it that I began to recognize that that was the one that was cracked. Listen, when I sat at my desk for two and a half weeks, almost 40 years ago, piecing that thing together, I never would have imagined it would have lasted 40 years, much less be at a place where you couldn't tell that it had been broken in the first place. See, that's the power of grace. See, it shouldn't surprise us because each one of us is a walking example of something that was broken and destroyed and messy that got put back together. Not only put back together, but put back together better than we ever were before through the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You see, there is a relationship that you have 
that needs to be restored. They may not take the first step, but you can. Don't give up. Don't give up on someone who's lost your trust. Don't give up on somebody who's disappointed you. Maybe this is the week that they seek restoration. Or maybe this is the week you do. Let's pray.